Well, this uh, election cycle is uh, unlike any other which I have ever experienced in my 60-plus years, and I'm sure that you would agree. Uh, Almost anyone you ask would tell you, well, (laughs) anyone who's paying attention would tell you that our nation, and though these words may seem to sound extreme, they really are probably much more right than we might want to admit. Our nation is on the precipice of a disaster from which we may, as a nation, never recover. Though the truth be told, one person's solution is the very disaster that the other one fears, (laughs) and vice versa. The rancor and anger, the anxiety and the dread in our society are palpable. Now, let me assure you uh, right from the start here that it's not my intention today uh, to turn our time together into just another political discussion. But I mention this because what we see when we look around us is, at least in part, the playing out of the text, that portion of God's Word, which we looked at the last time we were together last Sunday. And what we saw then was that God's anger is being expressed against the suppression of his truth. And this turmoil we're experiencing as a nation is the result of the chaos in our own hearts, which has made its way into the political arena. Now, that's not the whole story, of course. The politicians themselves have uh, greatly contributed to this disorder, but that, too, is a result of their moral condition. And by far, the moral aspect of this whole thing is more important than the political one, and not just because our morality determines our politics, but because this world will one day be brought to an end. And as a thing, a nation is but temporal. That is, it exists in this time only. It's a thing of the moment. But a human soul is an eternal matter, for we will all exist forever, ever, either as the living and redeemed children of God or as the damned shut out from his presence. Now make no mistake about this, the state of one human soul outweighs the state of the nation when eternity is taken into account. When Christ came into our world, it was not to save nations. It was to save people one person at a time. Now as believers, we respond to the moral disarray of our nation with the gospel. It was, in the days of the apostle, the power of God for salvation, just as it is in our day. But we're not the only ones who take note of these things. Other people, too, see where we are as a nation. They see the turpitude, the the moral morass that we're caught in. And some of them know it, and they simply don't care. They're those at that far end of the spectrum that we talked about last week whose minds are 
really given over to corruption. But others, all along that, that same ethical continuum, react to it in strong ways. Uh, they condemn those who are doing what they call evil. Now, I'm not referring here to uh, those people who are involved in the legitimate exercise of enforcing the law, those people who are fulfilling a moral responsibility by convicting the guilty. Rather, I'm talking about those people who in their heart pass judgment and condemn those sinners. Now, as some might think that those who condemn the sinners are the natural ally of Christians. That simply is not the case. Such people don't really advance the cause of Christ. Instead, they hinder it. And as it turns out, they are in an even worse condition than those sinners that they condemn. The text we're going to look at today talks about those who do that, who pass judgment on others those people who have a condemning spirit. So I want to ask you to join me once again in the book of Romans, this time in chapter 2, where we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16, and of course we'll have the text up on the screen on either side of me. Verse 1 of this chapter really sets the stage for our discussion. Uh, If you remember, Paul has just talked about the moral decay of the world that he inhabited, which is exactly like the world that we live in. And he talked about the process that brings a culture to such a state. It, It would be the most natural thing in the world for him to communicate, to commiserate with us, to, to, uh, to, to say woe for the bad things that are happening, to commiserate over the awful state of things and to dwell on how bad things are. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he he takes what can only be called an unexpected turn in the conversation. I came to Christ uh, at the age of 25. And so I remember very distinctly the first time I read the book of Romans and I remember how startled I was when I read verse 1 of chapter 2 especially after what I had just read in chapter 1 in fact it is indeed meant to arrest you to stop you in your tracks and to get your attention so let's read it and see if we can see why Paul writes this, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Instead of railing on the sinner, which is almost what we would have expected Paul to do, he confronts those who would condemn them. Now, there are a number of things that we need to observe about this text. And and maybe the first thing to get clear is what Paul means by that word, judge. And just like our English word, it really has a range of meanings. Often it means uh, to discern or to see something clearly, uh, to state a fact accurately without any cloud of emotion or distortion by sin. And from that... A judge can convict a person of committing a crime and do so wholly, legitimately, uprightly, and in a moral way, and it can please God in the process. But Paul was using this term, 
judge here with the connotation of condemning someone, to judge in a negative sense, and as a result even of mere feelings or dislike. So if we were to read it with that connotation, we would read this, You, therefore, have no excuse, you who condemn in your hearts someone else for whatever for at whatever point you condemn another, you're condemning yourself because you pass, pass judgment do the same thing. Paul is addressing people with a condemning spirit, with a heart which looks down on others. Now, the you here uh, that Paul begins with is what we might call an aside. In other words, Paul's not specifically addressing Christians here, even though he's writing to them. Uh, there's an application to the believer, but he's really talking to people in general. And he says two things here in this text to those who pass judgment on others. First, he tells them they have no excuse themselves. Now, now this is exactly the same position we saw back in chapter 1 that the rest of the world is in. Before God, none of us has an excuse. We are all accountable, including the self-pronounced moralists who condemn others. And secondly, when they condemn others, they're passing a negative judgment on themselves. And the reason is they do the same kinds of things. You see, their morality is selective. They're condemning sin in others, but they're giving themselves a pass. But before God, in that very act, they are in reality condemning not others, for their judgment holds no weight when it comes to them, but they condemn themselves, though they may not know it, and that condemnation is just. You know, it's a case of the pot calling the kettle black. We are all pots and kettles in this room. Who are we to condemn others? Verses 2 and 3 make this point even clearer. We read there, Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? It's God's place. It's not ours. It's not human beings to pass judgment on the world. His judgments are always just and true. We're, on the other hand, only human, and we're sinful at that, and we're prone ourselves to do wrong. And so just who are we that we should condemn anyone else? And those whom Paul is addressing really do believe that they're okay. They believe they themselves are not that bad. In fact, if you were to talk with them, that's what they would say. Yeah, I don't like what this guy's over doing over here, but I'm really not that bad. <laughs> this passage makes clear that like the rest of the world, they too will not escape God's justice. In fact, their situation is even worse than those that are at that far end of that moral spectrum we talked about last week those whose minds are given over to corruption. And it's worse in two ways. First, they demonstrate a real contempt for God's grace as it is displayed in our world. Look, God hates sin. And his character is such that he cannot abide it. 
He is utterly holy. But, but he doesn't destroy it in its place because if he did so, he would have to destroy us. And so he's gracious. He gives us time and space to change, to repent. And, of course, what that means in reality is that he gives us time and space to respond to his call to come to him for salvation. But these people, they're already condemning others whom God is still waiting on. Look at verse 4. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Paul is pointing out here they're showing contempt for God's grace, that very same grace which he is extending to them. The fact that God doesn't immediately destroy sin, his kindness, his forbearance, his patience, which he has in abundance for us, is so that people have a chance to turn from their ways, to turn to him. That is with the condemning spirit. They're showing disdain for that kind of grace. And then secondly, they're in a worse place than those who condemn because they're actually kind of storing up wrath and anger against themselves. Verse 5 says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God is, in some ways, expressing his anger against sin in our world today and every day. And we see it, for instance, in the turmoil of our own society. But but these people not only experience that, but they're under this ever-increasing weight of judgment because of their condemning spirit. You you could almost think of it like a dam that is swollen by the torrents of rain, and it's straining with all the force of that water against it, ready to give way at the slightest crack. God's forestalling that wrath for now. He's giving those who had that condemning spirit space and time to repent and to come to him. But if they don't, well, verse 6 tells us what will come. God will repay each person according to what they have done. You know, it really is a, a terrible thing to be in a position of one who has that kind of a condemning heart. It, it's as bad as being a sinner, which we all are, but this is even worse. So by their condemnation of others, they are in fact building a case against themselves and they convict themselves. They demonstrate a real contempt for God's grace. And as they persist in that way, they're storing up wrath against themselves And unless they come to Christ, they will get exactly what they deserve. Now, that's what we've seen in our passage so far. And what I want to do is I want to go through the rest of our passage this morning, and I'm going to do so rather quickly. But I'm going to go through it because it, um, it it gives a kind of context to what we've been discussing so far. There's much more here. But uh, we're going to just try to touch on those parts that help us maybe better understand what Paul has been saying here. The people we've been talking about are holding 
others understand to some kind of a standard. And that standard, in some ways, reflects the Old Testament law of Moses. It's not identical to it. In most cases, at least, it's not identical to it. But, but there are things in their standard which echo God's law. And Paul now begins a conversation which will go on for a number of chapters. And what he says here, though it may apply in other ways, he is saying to those who have that condemning spirit. So after stating God will repay to each what they have done, he says this in verses 7 through 10. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Now please understand what Paul's saying here. He's already told us that the only righteousness we can have is a righteousness that comes to us from God through the gospel. And he's going to go home to, in this book to drive home the point that no one can work their way into heaven. You and I cannot get there on our own steam. No one can. And what he's saying here is if you intend by your life by the way you live to be able to stand before God, then you had better do it perfectly. Persistence in doing good must be absolute for any self-seeking, any rejection of the truth, any following after evil brings wrath. And verses, excuse me, verses 12 and 13 make this clear. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight but uh, it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous so if, if you want to stand before God on your own merits you can never falter and of course we all have haven't we every one of us that are here have already failed and what's more the truth of the matter is is we cannot no matter how hard we try, stop failing. Before I was a Christian, I used to think, if I just made up my mind, I could stop sinning. How foolish was I? It's not until you make up your mind that you want to try to live right that you discover just how powerful that sinful nature is in you. We sin. Because that's what we are. We're sinners. Now verse 11, which I skipped over, which reads, For God does not show favoritism. I interpret to mean God does not show favoritism. You, you may think that you're a good guy. Maybe we would say you're a pretty good guy. But if you insist on holding others to some standard, you're going to be held to that same standard also, and you will not pass the test. It also applies 
text here, for God doesn't show favoritism to Jews and Gentiles, which once again Paul mentions, and it was for the Romans uh, an important topic, and Paul's going to address it in some detail, uh, and we'll see that as we make our way through the letter. But here we can conclude something. Uh, we, we can conclude that the Jews were condemning the Gentiles, or, or the Gentiles were condemning the Jews, more likely they were condemning each other. You know, it's a, another case of pots and kettles here. Verses 14 and 15 tell us one more thing that we need to know about all of this, and that is even those without any religion at all still have a sense of right and wrong. That's how they're able to say that this thing that someone is doing offends me. It's how they can say this thing is wrong. It, it, it's the what they base their condemnation on. They're not applying it evenly, I, I understand that, but they do know right from wrong, and as we read in verse 14, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the laws, their law for themselves, even though they don't have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences, also bearing witness in their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. Jew had the law, but the Gentiles weren't far behind. God has given to all people a conscience, a sense of what is right and what is wrong. And that together with the witness of the creation, which we uh, noted last time together, is enough to make all of us responsible before God for our actions. The pot, when it calls the kettle black, is just as guilty as the kettle. And it's even in a worse place. People who do that have a, a spirit of condemnation and they, they build a case against themselves when they accuse others. God won't show them favoritism. They disdain the grace of God which is extended to all, both to the one who condemns and the one they condemn. And if they reject that grace for others, they're rejecting it for themselves too. And they are storing up wrath against themselves if they persist in their condemnation. Verse 16, I think, brings all of this to its proper conclusion. The things Paul has been talking about, though people may not heed them now, will be made plain on the day of judgment. And so we read this. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Those things we think are hidden, we think no one knows about. They'll be made plain on that day. Judgment will come, but it will not be based on the way we see things. Our secrets, or, or can I put it another way? Our hearts will be laid open and that's what God will judge through Jesus Christ. That's what the text says, as declared in the gospel. See, what we do with Christ, how we respond to his call, his invitation to come to him for forgiveness and life, that is how God will judge us. Not the way we would judge one another. So if we come to him, then none of our sins will be held against others, will None of them will even be remembered. But if we reject him, even if it's only by ignoring his call, 
and no bear the full weight of our sin and any wrath which we've been stirred up. And that's the point. <laughs> the person who condemns others does nothing to help themselves as well as hurting themselves. They don't help other people. The only cure is the gospel. It is still God's power to save. It can reach anyone anywhere on that moral spectrum that we talked about last time, and it can even reach the one who is storing up wrath against himself or herself. Christ died to save sinners. That means he died for you and for me. If you come to him and ask to be forgiven, you will be. Ask him to save you, he will. There, there is no other way. That's what we learn from this passage. Now, what I want to do in our last little bit of time together is I want to see if I can apply what we've talked about here, about these people with a condemning spirit. I want to see if I can uh, apply it to those of us who are in this room uh, who have put our faith in Christ, who really are Christians. And so when Paul began this section, he began with that word, you, which we said was a kind of a generic address. He's talking to just everybody here. He's trying to be very pointed. It's not just groups, but individuals. But we also noted that, um, that it can be applied to our lives also. So I, I want to try to make this application in two ways, if I can. First, I, I want to tell you about a personal account in God's wor work in my own life. When I first became a Christian, I attended a church that was a kind of a cult, and it was very legalistic. And there was a real spirit of condemnation. Uh, people took a, really a, a perverse pleasure in confronting others over perceived wrongs or some sin they had fallen into. And I have to tell you, I was as bad or worse than everyone else. I was quick to, to condemn. And, and I really thought in doing so, I was acting in righteousness. Well, God in his grace um, took me through a time in my life. It was absolutely the worst time in my whole life. And it was so bad I would never wish it on my worst enemy. It, it was a time when I felt as though I was under the wrath of God. It was a time when I felt as though I could not get forgiveness from God no matter how I begged. It was an awful time. And I was in such turmoil in my heart that I thought of taking my own life. And at that time, he showed me something. He showed me that was exactly how I was treating others. I showed them no grace, no forgiveness. I only condemned. And I was getting just what I was giving. And I saw that and I cried out for mercy and God was merciful. I am not the same man that I was before that experience. And, 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 and that experience, which I would not have wished on my worst enemy, I tell you, I now could desire that for my best friend if they needed it and if it would have the same result in their life that it had in mine. Condemning spirit is awful. But you don't have to go through what I did. 
you can see what God's word says and you can take it in your heart and you can make up your mind that that's not the kind of person you're going to be and when you fail confess it and begin again the second way that I want to apply this is to come back to uh, to where we started this election cycle we're presently in. And I want to make a couple of observations. You know, both the candidates in this election are flawed. You know, all candidates in all elections are flawed, let's face that. But these two may be worse than most, more the most flawed that we've ever had to choose from. At least they certainly appear to be. But when you see Hillary or Donald, one is a pot and the other is a kettle, you understand. But when you see one or the other do something that disgusts you, when they do something wrong, when they sin, I I want you to see that sin. I want you to recognize it for what it is. I don't want you to show any favoritism. I want you to condemn that sin when you see it in whomever you see it in. I want you to call it what it is. Call it evil because sin is evil. Be clear in your own thinking about the wrong that it is and why it's wrong. But don't, in your heart, condemn either the pot or the kettle. It's so easy to do. It's so easy to think, ah, that person might get the election. They might win. But one day they're going to stand before God and then they'll get what's coming to them. It's true, you know. It's true. I ought not to be taking comfort in that. It ought to break your heart. We should not find pleasure in that kind of thing. Our God is a God who saves And neither Donald or Hillary or any other pot, whoever they might be supporting or whatever they have done or not done, whatever people are, wherever they are, whatever they've done, no one is beyond God's reach. That's what we ought to hope for. And that's what we ought to live and die for. Psalm 69, a rather long psalm. I'll read a couple of short portions to you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. I read those words and it reminds me of Christ. I'm gone reading says this, may the table set before them become a snare, may it become a retribution and a trap, may their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever, pour out your wrath on them and let your fierce anger overtake them. Between those two sections in my Bible, I have written these words, the cross of Christ stands here. Christ on his cross forgave those who put him there. 
And what that psalmist says in that second section describes accurately the way we feel when someone sins against us or when we see sin as God sees sin. And it accurately describes the end of those who will not repent. But between my feelings and the end of the wicked, the cross of Christ stands. It is the only hope anyone has. Swirling around that cross is all the evil of our world. And it still stands. And it's what we want to point people to. We're not asking them to become better people. They can't do that on their own. We're pointing them to a person. The God who can save them and make them something they could never be otherwise. The good news of Jesus Christ is still the power of God for salvation. Would you pray with me, please? Father, guard us from that condemning heart and spirit. Help us, Lord, to represent you as we make our way through this world. Help us, Lord, to be the kind of people who invite others. Because we've met with you, gracious God, so may we be gracious. May we take your message with us everywhere we go. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ.